Hey, podcast fans, I've got to talk to you about drinking water. As an archaeologist, I've been on surveys where we had to drink three to five liters of water every day. That's 1.3 gallons, just to basically not die. Sometimes that water just doesn't hydrate you as quickly as you're using it. That's why we've partnered with Liquid IV. The small packets make it easy to take one with you to work, to work out, or on any adventure. I like the strawberry lemonade and lemon lime ones the best. Just put one stick of Liquid IV into 16 ounces of water and get hydrated two times faster than with just water alone. And now with our partnership, you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code TAS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration Today using promo code TAS at liquidiv.com. You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Podcast, episode 17. I'm Chris Webster. April Camp Whitaker is out for this episode. On today's show, we interview biological anthropologist John Marks. We'll talk about his latest book, Is Science Racist?, and get his take on some current events. Let's dig a little deeper. the show everyone as i mentioned in the introduction april is out today so it's just me but on the show we've got dr jonathan marks he's a professor of anthropology at the university of north carolina at charlotte where he teaches biological anthropology human variation human origins and science studies he's the author of several books including what it means to be 98 percent chimpanzee the first book of his that i ever read why i am not a scientist a few others and most recently is Science Racist. It's an essay that you can get on Amazon for actually a really reasonable price. So, John Marks, how's it going? Hi, Chris. It's a lovely day here in Charlotte, North Carolina. <laughs> nice. So, why don't you add to that introduction and tell people what you're interested in and what you what you really do? Well, um, I've uh, evolved over the years. I started out in biological anthropology as sort of a faux geneticist. Um, and I've evolved over the years into a sort of a faux historian. So I do a lot of interdisciplinary work, which is, I think, where the interesting questions generally are in science or in scholarship. But that's the nice thing about anthropology is it gives you a broad enough intellectual base to be able to um, work with, with scholars and do scholarly work in all kinds of directions. You recently did a, uh, created a book called Is Science Racist? How does that tie into your research interests? Well, of course, biological anthropology is the study of um, who we are and where we come from. And um, in that sense, um, that's the big question that we're all interested in sort of as, as cultural citizens. But biological anthropology is in the interesting position of being an authoritative scientific voice about those questions. Um, and we've never really come to grips with the responsibility, I think, that comes with being an authoritative scientific voice on a question that everybody wants to know about. Um, if a nuclear physicist says something authoritative about bosons, you know, no one really cares. Right. Um, so um, the big question that interests me is putting together um, our opponents 
on both ends of biological anthropology because, of course, you know, it, it's a unique science in that we have two large segments of American society that are against what we study. You know, there, there's the creationists who don't like what we have to say about where we come from, uh, and there's the racists who don't like what we have to say about who we are. Right. Um, and I don't think any other science has to deal with that. You don't see people, you know, out there saying, well, you know, the particle physicists are all wrong about the internal structure of nuclei or something like that. So what fascinates me is the fact that we've pretty much purged creationism from modern science. If, if, if you want to publish a, or if you want to do a creationist study or publish a creationist paper, you have to do it from outside of science and you can't do it in a scientific journal because we recognize that's an outmoded ideology and it fundamentally corrupts the science that you're going to produce. But we don't have that same attitude about scientific racism. And okay, 50 years ago, it was a lot more of a presence in science than it is now, but it's still out there and in really weird, frightening ways. And I think it's fascinating that we don't have the same, you know, if you're a scientific racist, um, people will look at you a little askance um, and um, they might huddle in a different corner at a cocktail party or something like that. <laughs> but you can still have a career as a scientist, which you can't have as a creationist. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm arguing you shouldn't have a career uh, in science as either one. I mean, is science racist then? And, and what, do we even, <laughs> what do we even mean by that? I mean, you, 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 you've explained this, but this, is, this podcast goes out to a more general audience and not necessarily archaeologists or archaeology professionals. So, you know, let's determine, let's define race. First off, can you define race for the audience um, biologically or is it purely cultural? Um, well, I mean, there is no formal scientific definition of race. That's right. just something that has, uh, a, a, you know, informal um, uh, use within, uh, as applied to, to the human species. But if we can backtrack just a second, um, uh, you asked the question, sort of, what is scientific, you know, what is racism in, in science? Um, let me make it clear that my book is specifically about the content of science. Um, which is to say scientific racism. If you want to ask, is the practice of science racist? Well, you know, like any other institution in modern society, there's racism in it. I mean, that's one of the things that we as social progressives are working you know, to change. Um, I don't know that science is any more racist than any other segment of society. But that's not what my book is about. My book is specifically about the content of science um, and how certain scientists um, invoke the uh, superiority or inferiority of large groups uh, of ostensibly natural people or large ostensibly natural groups of people um, as somehow uh, relevant to social issues um, and somehow real. And, and again, this stuff gets shot down every decade that it's brought up and it's brought up in, in sort of new guises. Um, and it gets published and it gets funded um, often by sort of shadowy right-wing um, foundations, but it finds places often in um, the mainstream scientific literature, which itself is kind of scary. Yeah, uh, you know, I I lived in North Carolina and South Carolina for a little while, actually, and uh, I'm just wondering what the reception. Now it's only been out for a little while, but what the reception to this idea 
um, and this essay have been where you're at. I mean, I know at a university, no matter where you're at, you're usually in a kind of a bubble of liberalism a little bit, <laughs> but um, outside I, the university. I call it education. <laughs> right, exactly, right? Um, but outside of the university in Charlotte, and, and again, Charlotte is more of a more of a cosmopolitan type city too, but yes. getting outside of Charlotte, you get into some pretty polarizing territories where um, where racism is alive and well. I mean, what's... Uh, how has living in that area kind of affected your, your, your opinions on this subject? Well, actually living in North Carolina and in Charlotte, Charlotte, as you say, is, is a very cosmopolitan part of North Carolina. And in particular, since it's the business center of North Carolina, mm-hmm. um, what it means is that people travel um, and people meet different kinds of people. And as soon as you do that, those kinds of intellectual walls break down. I and mean, even, even Mark Twain knew that the more you travel, the less of a jerk you are. <laughs> but again, uh, you know, I, th- I think anywhere you go in America, um, the, the more you stay at home and, and stay in your own bubble, um, very often the more um, prejudiced you are against outsiders of, of, of any kind. Right. Well, xenophobic. Yeah, and and of course, one one of the problems is that you sometimes have biologists saying that this is an ingrained biological feature of human evolution. I I think it's entomologists say that usually, Um, when in fact, of course, who you're conditioned to identify with and identify against are very much cultural construction. Yeah, that's true. And again, I think you you hit the nail on the head there. Travel is really really the big thing. Um, I mean, just to... Just to use my own experience as an example, you know, I grew up in a small town in Washington State, and you know, we, we had, I guess, if you're talking heritage, we had uh, uh, Hispanics in our in our classrooms, and that was pretty much it. You know, there was a, lot, a large Hispanic population in that area, and uh, but then I went into the Navy and down in San Diego, I went to boot camp, <laughs> and I'll tell mm-hmm. you what, that was a lesson in diversity for me. Um, yeah. I didn't really grow up in a in a racist household, so it wasn't even. Uh, Luckily for me, it wasn't like a like a concept. Like I wasn't already conditioned to judge people that weren't like me, so it was easy for me to kind of just fall into that. But there were other people that were having a really hard time with it, um, and not just white people. You know, other people mm-hmm. that hadn't had. You know, there were African Americans in my in my squad that didn't have outside influence from where they were. You know, they didn't have a lot of diversity in their own communities, and they came into this, sure. and you know, worth eighty different people, and it was a it was a shock to the system. Well, actually, there there is a story uh, parallel to that that may well have been influential in the history of the field of biological anthropology, because, of course, the field underwent a tremendous change after World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, one of the reasons for that change that were actually said to me by one of my professors, Fred Hulse, the University of Arizona, mm-hmm. um, is that... Um, after world in World War II was really the first time that uh, white soldiers and black soldiers, even though there were segregated divisions, but actually interacted with one another in you know as co as nearly co-equals. Right. And after World War II, some of those white soldiers entered biological anthropology and became the tenured professors of the next generation. And they had very different experiences than their professors had had. Yeah, I bet they did. 
I bet they did indeed. Yeah, and I, and um, the argument that Professor Hulse gave me is that certainly in his personal experience, that helped catalyze the transformation uh, of biological anthropology. Um, you know, I can't generalize from that. All I can tell you is that that's what he told me, and it may well be true. Nice. Well, you know, I, I think to, to take it back to my field of archaeology, uh, I'm a cultural resource management archaeologist. Um, I've worked all over the country, but now I've been based here in the Great Basin and, and California area for the last eight or so years. And I feel like without putting a without us intentionally putting a label on it, that we're actually kind of racist in a lot of our in a lot of our evaluations of sites, uh, because we try to place our our cultural influences and our backgrounds on what we're reading of a 6,000-year-old, you know, prehistoric site when there's there's little way that we can know why or when they did things. And one of the one of the good examples of that is there's a there's a really big resurgence right now or not resurgence, but I guess um, a big movement right now to investigate the influence of children on the archaeological record. And there's a number of people doing that because I mean, we used to joke, <laughs> this is horrible, but we used to joke that uh, I remember when I first got into archaeology and we were, I was first finding some, it was actually in North Carolina, and we were on this project out near the coast and we were finding these really, really poor looking, chunky projectile points. They were just, now I know that it was, it was more of a, a function of the material, that quartz is really hard to, to make into anything, but, mm-hmm. um, but we were joking that, because we would find a, a really nice piece every once in a while and we were joking that the the um the not so nice ones were just the tribe idiot or something like that or the person that didn't know what they were doing (laughs) or something like that i don't think we really meant it but i think looking back on that i'm really sad that we made those kind of determinations because realistically it it could have been children it could have been somebody learning it could have been you know just poor material it could have been a lot of things but i feel like us kind of looking through our lens on these sites and these things, even if it was joking, can sometimes probably come out in our writing as well when we're doing evaluations of these sites. Well, I think there has been a real change in um, bioanthro and, and archaeology, certainly over the course of my career. Um, you know, I, I did my PhD in 84, um, and that's when NAGPRO, you know, was right on the horizon. And um, there was a lot of apprehension in the field about what that was going to do to the practice of bioarchaeology. I don't think the word even existed at the time. And NAGPRA passed. And, and of course, I think what there is now is sort of a generation gap in archaeology between people educated before NAGPRA who sort of saw NAGPRA as a threat to science um, and people educated after NAGPRA who tend to see NAGPRA as, a, a, you know, a statement of human rights, and this is how you do science in the modern age. And a parallel thing happened in biological anthropology, particularly anthropological genetics, with the Human Genome Diversity Project that came along right on the heels of NAGPRA, um, although the geneticists hadn't really been paying attention to what the archaeologists were dealing with. And basically, um, right after NAGPRA was passed and the archaeologists were having to grapple with, you know, giving back bones that they shouldn't have had, (laughs) stuff like that, the geneticists say, hey, we have a great idea. Let's go out to the indigenous peoples of the world and collect their blood and bring it back to Palo Alto so we can study it. And when it, you know, when the indigenous peoples themselves, of course, weren't consulted about this, they were being spoken about, not spoken to, um, and some of the anthropologists heard about this, so we said, um, gee, that sounds rather colonialist, um, sounds a little bit 
um, like you need to be paying attention to the fact that Native peoples are a lot more empowered, certainly in American science, um, than they used to be. And one of the important things also, I think, is that the Australians are way ahead of us in decolonizing their science. Yeah. And um, uh, so the geneticists couldn't believe how everybody else was politicizing their project, as if opening the veins of the indigenous peoples of the, of, of the world were not a political <laughs> project. <laughs> Um, and eventually they didn't get their funding. You know, they wanted a lot of federal funding, didn't get it. Mm -hmm. um, and they never quite understood why. Um, and, you know, what's happened now is that that's all privatized. So now you've got basically the Genographic Project doing what the Human Genome Diversity Project um, said they wanted to do, but since Genographic Project is funded privately, they don't really have to worry about the same issues that uh, the Genome Diversity Project did when they were going out to uh, try and drum up support. Um, but there is this generation gap. I think the field is evolving. Um, I know that the American Association of Anthropological Geneticists is working to come up with a um, statement of ethics. Um, and again, a lot of this stuff is largely reactive to what was going on in the field in the 1990s, and it reflects the maturation of a young generation of scholars in a very different academic environment than their advisors grew up in. You know, I think it's it's good that... It's good that the the major societies and organizations are are maybe redrafting or adding to or changing their statements of ethics. Um, you know, I belong to a couple the SAAs, a couple archaeological societies, SAAs, SHAs, some local ones. But you know, the the unfortunate thing about the world that we live in is that nearly anyone can have a really loud voice about what they what they believe in and what they want to do. And if they don't belong to one of these societies and they're not even maybe a researcher. The uh, you know the blogs out there and the other podcasts and and just the the avenues where people have to speak about these things. I mean, the Ancient Aliens show is one of the most popular shows <laughs> on TV, and yeah. that's why one of our podcasts, Archaeological Fantasies, has almost thirty thousand monthly listeners because <laughs> these people. I feel like it's the Ancient Aliens crowd coming to hear, which is great because they spend their time debunking all this stuff. <laughs> so. Yeah. But I feel like we we as scientists need to do more to not just not just sign a new ethics document from our society, but I think they should put in that document that it should be our job to s sort of counter some of that stuff that's out there. Not and counter it with research, sure. Counter it with really good, well thought out research, but also counter it with our public opinions. Um, you have a blog. How much do you how much do you get into this on your blog? You know, as far as talking about other, you know, maybe debunking other stuff or whatever. Yeah, I don't get into that a lot on my on my blog. I don't blog a lot, maybe every couple of months, and, and I use my blog basically um, to say things that I'd never consider saying in print. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, the, the issue of, of um, alien, you know, people believing in space aliens, you know, contributing to human culture and all that, um, I think it's one of these interesting, unique problems that comes with studying who we are and where we come from. 
um, because it's something that everyone's interested in. And particle physicists don't have to deal with that. You know, fruit fly mm -hmm. geneticists don't have to deal with that. And I think one of the more interesting problems that we have to deal with is fruit fly geneticists who really don't have to grapple with the same public issues that we do. Um, trying to tell us how to understand and how to interact with the public and how, and how to explain human evolution, how to deal with creationism, as if fruit fly geneticists actually have to deal with creationism. Right. Creationists don't care about fruit flies. Yeah. You know, no. we're, it's human evolution that they care about. Um, and what's kind of weird sometimes is that anthropologists uh, get it from the political right within science Mm -hmm. um, often as, as much as we get it from the uh, political right in society. Um, so, you know, we've got, you know, Richard Dawkins, for example, can't stand anthropologists <laughs> any more than he can stand creationists. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think that's really sad um, because it really shows that there is even a colonial mentality out there within science um, mm -hmm. that, that some scientists don't believe they even need to read the literature in a field that they're not really masters of right. um, in order to pronounce uh, in some degree authoritatively on it. And that's one of the things I'm interested in. Uh, now as well. I don't think that our leadership, uh, Richard Dawkins, Jerry Coyne, and that gang, uh, dealing with the creationists have been particularly effective, and I think we need to um, sort of redraw those battle lines. Okay, well that sounds like a good spot to take our first break, and uh, we'll be back in 30 seconds to continue our conversation with Jonathan Marks. Hey everybody, Chris Webster here to talk about one of the latest supporters to the Archaeology Podcast Network, The Motley Fool. Now, I've been investing in the stock market through various applications for a few years now, and everybody who's listening to this can benefit from that sort of investment for the long-term financial planning. And also, I know the hosts of these podcasts can benefit because as archaeologists, like none of us get retirement, <laughs> we all have to kind of fend for ourselves. So investing in the stock market is a good idea, but not everybody can do it. And look, we get it. The market is complicated and confusing, and to many of us, it simply doesn't make sense. In fact, where do you even start? Take all of the guesswork out of it with the Motley Fool Stock Advisor. The Motley Fool has been around for over 25 years and has been spot on in recommending some of the world's most important companies before they hit the big time. I'm talking about Amazon, Tesla, Netflix, Starbucks, all before they exploded in value. With their easy to use and super informative service, Stock Advisor, you could join the ranks before they potentially find the next big thing. After all, their average stock recommendation is up over 400% as of April 10th, 2023. And no need to be intimidated by financial jargon or market complexities. As the name suggests, these guys don't take themselves too seriously. Now, finances, that's a different story. Their friendly and relaxed approach has helped over 700,000 people move closer to financial independence, all while beating the market and having fun. New members can access Stock Advisor for only $89 for their first year, a full $110 off the full list price. Don't sit on the sidelines and think about what could have happened. Visit fool.com slash APN to start your investing journey today. That's $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. So again, check the link in the show notes of this episode. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. 
Okay, we're back. And I was thinking near the end of that that last segment that this kind of leads to to me thinking about your first the first book of yours that I read, which was what it means to be ninety eight percent chimpanzee. And I read that probably I don't know fourteen years ago or something. It was around two thousand three or two. I think that might have been around yeah. when it came out. Yeah, because you were you were talking about it. I first saw you at the Triple A's in uh, Chicago, the American Anthropological Association conference, and. Uh, but one of the things that always stuck with me in that book was I, I'm pretty sure, and I could, hopefully I'm not attributing this to somebody else, but I'm pretty sure you had a line in there <laughs> where, you know, you know, we're 98% chimpanzee, but we're also like 70 some odd percent daffodil or something like that. And <laughs> just looking at genetics <laughs> like that, that probably yeah. lower, but <laughs> something like that. And always that always kind of stuck with me, regardless of what the number is, that we share we share genetic material with, you know, pretty much everything on the planet and uh, almost. And it's just, it's amazing when you look at it that way. And then you look at our, our closest relatives and then you just start, when you start really digging into that, you start looking at other humans and you know, how close we all are. I mean, it's almost imperceptibly close, you know? Sure. Um, you know, I, I think the take home lesson there is that it's probably a bad idea to try and encapsulate the relationships of species into the relationships of their DNA. Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, by the same measurement that um, uh, makes us, you know, very, very similar to chimpanzees, base for base, nucleotide for nucleotide, over 98%, we're going to be over a quarter um, genetically similar in exactly the same way to the daffodil or to the carrot that the chimpanzee is eating. And the reason for that is simply that DNA is made up of a long string of only four nucleotides. So there's only four things you can be at any one of those DNA sites, which means that a, a random comparison is going to yield a 25% match. Mm-hmm. So if you compare human DNA to, let's say, carrot DNA, there's going to be at least a 25% match there by the same comparison that you're comparing the, the human and the chimpanzee. But anyone who told you that you were one quarter carrot because your <laughs> DNA matches a carrot DNA 25% of the time, you know, you, you, you'd say they were crazy or they're pulling your leg or something. <laughs> right. So, so my point there is, is um, that there's this whole ideology of genetics that we don't want to question um, genetic facts, um, but they aren't obvious and we do need to interrogate them. And the reason that there is um, this apparent paradox in how similar we are to chimpanzees genetically is due to three things. You know, one, we've been studying the body of chimpanzees for 300 years. We've only been studying their DNA for about 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't really know how to make DNA comparisons in the same way that we know how to make anatomical comparisons. Right. And um, when you compare DNA, you can make these very precise quantitative statements simply by comparing bases for bases and how many differences there are. But you can't really say whether the head of a chimpanzee and the head of a human is 99% identical or 94% identical because it's a four-dimensional object, right? It occupies space, changes through time, doesn't lend itself to a linear number like the DNA comparison does. Mm-hmm. So we've got three things going on. One, familiarity with chimp bodies. Two, unfamiliarity with how to make DNA comparisons. And three, the fact that um, similar and dissimilar are very culturally constituted concepts. And, you know, we like to think of similarity as running from 0%, i.e. totally different, to 100% similar, i.e. totally the same. 
DNA doesn't work that way <laughs> because you don't really get below 25% similarity um, except non-randomly. Mm -hmm. So if you're making a DNA comparison, 25% is your random mark. That's your baseline, which means that it's not quite like comparing other kinds of things. Right. It's a it's amazing how our brains work and, and how we're able to have all these ideas, sometimes conflicting ideas in our heads. Because you're right, you look at the DNA of two people, even two siblings standing next to each other, and it's going to be incredibly similar, right? It's going to be really close, especially if they're siblings or they're related in some way. But at the same time, and they're going to say, oh, you know, we're we're similar in this way, but at the same time, they're going to assert their differences. And <laughs> they're going to say, well, there's no way that I'm I'm like this person. You know, he likes action movies and I like, you know, sci-fi movies and stuff like that. And we, we, we want to have our differences and yet we're more similar than we think. And um, it just depends on, I guess, what lens you're looking at it through or what you're trying to prove. We just kind of flip our brains into saying, well, that group of people is different from me because of some, you know, perceived thing that I see about them that's different. Therefore, they're less or they're more or something like that. And uh, it's just amazing how we can do that. And I, I don't know how we can solve that. Well, I mean, we've studied the patterns of diversity in the human species. And, and I think probably um, the most important lesson that we've learned in anthropology over the last century is that most differences between human groups are cultural. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are things like dress and language and deity and behaviors and things like that. And those can change radically in a, a generation or two. Um, if you somewhat perversely want to ignore the main pattern of variation in, in human behavior and human diversity, the cultural, and just separate out the biological, just look at the genetics, let's say, mm -hmm. um, the main pattern of variation that you find is what we call polymorphism. Um, and that's just multiple alleles in the same population. Nearly every population has nearly every variant. What differs is their proportions. So we can call that polymorphism or cosmopolitanism um, of, of population genetics, everything being found everywhere. Um, probably about 90% of the detectable genetic variation sorts out that way. Mm -hmm. If you want to ignore the cultural and the polymorphic or cosmopolitan variation, what's left for the most part is clinal variation, that is to say, changing gradually over geography. And if you want to ignore the top three sources of variation, what's left, you know, you want to ignore the cultural, you want to ignore the polymorphic, you want to ignore the clinal, what's left is local variation genetically. That is to say, there is no climate of Africa that people have to adapt to climates are local right um so um in that sense we have learned something about the patterns of human variation and the, i think the second most important thing we've learned is that human variation is different from race if you want to study race you're studying legal history you're studying um, morality you're studying justice you're studying humanities but if you want to study human variation that doesn't map onto race. It has very different patterns. And of course, you can study that formally, scientifically. But they're two different questions, human diversity and race. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about diversity a little bit, because I was, I was reading an article just the other day about um, some of the new findings from the, the Homo naledi. Um, naledi? Naledi? Um, naledi, yeah. Naledi, yeah, that's what I thought. Okay. Find in South Africa. And they've done some 
some recent dating on that. They they looked at the and, and you know this. I'm just saying this for the audience. They looked at the the fossils and they said, well, just looking at these traits morphologically, they look you know they look pretty old. <laughs> they look you know they're placing them in the time frame at you know a million years back, something like that. But now that they've had time to do some some pretty sophisticated dating on there. Um, they're finding out that they're, um, I'm just looking here, between 236 and 335,000 years old, which mm-hmm. is really starting to crowd the, um, to, to crowd the, the number of, of homo variants there were at that time in South Africa and, and probably in el- elsewhere. What are, your, what are your thoughts on this, on this, you know, placing them at this time frame? Sure. Well, I mean, it's a, a wonderful fossil sample. Because um, it, it's also from a different cave in that same area. Um, so they now have two sites where they're finding Homo naledi. Um, there was a little hint that it might turn out to be young because actually the material isn't fully fossilized, not fully mineralized, um, which did suggest a little bit of youth. Hmm. Um, but from the anatomy, I mean, it looks like a nearly australopithecine, you know, very sort of primitive homo anatomy. So you would have guessed it was a million, two million years old. So it is quite surprising to find it um, that recent. Um, And um, it seems to be a a closely related group of uh, hominids. Uh, One of the most fascinating things about the sample is that there's no other fauna there. It's just the homo naledi bones um, and maybe a couple of others. Um, so it's a wonderful treasure, treasure trove of um, uh, material to look at. Um, Lee Berger, I think, has done a wonderful job in getting a diverse team um, to work on it, publishing in um, open access journals, um, and really democratizing the process of uh, paleoanthropology here. You know, the fossils are also um, generally available um, to 3D print um, for classroom use. Mm-hmm. So it's really revolutionized the practice of paleoanthropology in, in, in a wonderful way. It's interesting to me, too, how kind of how paleoanthropologists look at this, because there, there aren't that many paleoanthropologists out there. <laughs> so there's been, you know, in, in the terms of the whole field, you know, there's, there's never that many in, in that, that are really doing some serious research in any one period of time. And you go back all the way to, you know, Louis Leakey, Eugene Dubois, all these people, you go back as far as you want. And every time something new was found, they would rewrite the, 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 the human family tree, for, all, you know, for lack of a better term. And the more research we do, we keep rewriting, we keep rewriting, we keep rewriting. And I, I, again, I feel like as scientists, we need, to, we need to show people that this is just our current thinking. This isn't, this isn't definitive by any means, and this isn't you know, necessarily the, the entire picture. In fact, it's probably not because we find the stuff that was well-preserved. We find the stuff that hit just those right conditions to create fossils. And, you know, it's a really small percentage of things that, that, that die, that do fossilize. And we're finding just that tiny, small percentage. And, um, and so what I'm leading to with this is, you know, this is dating this type of hominid or, or, or homo specimen to this time frame starts to add to lend a little bit more credibility, I think, to having the conversation about um, the episode we had two episodes ago on this show about the supposed 133,000-year-old site in California. People are saying, well, who could it possibly have been? The only people it could have been were Native Americans, some people are saying. I don't think any legitimate scientists are saying that, but they're saying that. But then other people are starting to say, well, maybe we don't know. 
you know? Maybe it could have been something we're totally unfamiliar with that just happened to make it here somehow. Maybe it could have been, you know, who knows what. But to say definitively that that we know it could it had to be this or it couldn't be this or something like that seems incredibly naive and I'm glad some scientists are speaking out about that but um what what are your thoughts on the on the mastodon site in California and and then in relation to this new information as well that came out after that Yeah um I'm again I'm I'd like to consider myself a little more post-colonial in terms of the way I think about science and um the idea of telling someone who considers themselves descended from the first occupants of, of this continent that they're not really um, is a hell of a responsibility to assume. And um, I'd like to see it be based on a lot more solid information than no human fossils um, and some sort of cracked uh, mastodon bones. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think there is a burden of social responsibility there that I th- that creeps me out. Um, <laughs> in, it, 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 it's sort of pre-NAGPRA almost. Um, even though I know that the investigators, let me just say, I know the investigators, uh, you know, have, have very good hearts, work very well with Native American populations. Um, but there is a mindset here that we're going to tell you where you came from, and it's not where you think you came from. Mm-hmm. Um, that really goes against the grain for me. Um, and again, if it were based on more solid information, that would be something. Um, but it's this isn't just, hey, here's a hypothesis. Um, it's a hypothesis with very important biopolitical uh, implications, which I think, again, fruit fly geneticists don't have to deal with. This isn't value-neutral science. Um, and the connection to Homo naledi is this is a, a big thing in South Africa as well. I mean, this this work is taking place in a political context in South Africa. Um, and if you pay attention to the politics of paleoanthropology, um, one of the important things going on is the question of whose fossils are better, Kenya's fossils or <laughs> South Africa's fossils. Right. And, of course, the scientists who work in both of those places line up on the side of their country. So... Again, if you want to understand the controversies, there there is background to it, and part of that background um, involves recognizing what the political stakes are. Again, there are no political stakes in fruit fly evolution. There are always political stakes in controlling the scientific narrative of where we came from, because one of, again, the important generalizations about anthropology Probably the first generalization that we could ever make in anthropology is that nobody regards their ancestors and relatives in objective, rational, uh, um, unprejudiced ways. I mean, your ancestors, your relatives are always special. That's kinship. (laughs) And that was the very first research program in anthropology. And what's fascinating is that we've been reluctant to look at ourselves, the science that we do, and realize that what we're doing is scientific kinship studies. We're telling, you know, a a an authoritative scientific story, but it's still kinship. Um, and one of the things that I'm interested in doing is sort of giving an anthropological frame to the biological anthropological work that we do. Yeah, I've, I've worked with uh, I've worked with plenty of people that uh, that work with Native Americans and Native American monitors and things like that. And they'll they'll sit there and listen to them tell their stories and say you know what they want to say. But then you know after work in the hotel room or in the bar, they're like. 
man, those guys are crazy. They think they've been here forever, but our evidence shows they've only been here, you know, 6,000 years or 10,000 years or 15,000 years or however far you want to go back. And now, now that we have this, you know, what people are saying to this 130,000 year old site, or even some older sites that are there in North and South America that, that have been kind of on the fringe. Um, mm. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's reason to be, uh, I don't know, cautious in our statements, I think. And, and, and the way we say these things. Well, but also, you know, um, part, part of this argument is, oh, we're validating the um, oral histories of these native groups that say that they've mm -hmm. been here for far longer than that. But then the question comes up, wait, these weren't the ancestors of Native Americans. They're mystery people. Right. Um, and <laughs> that's where I think there is a disconnect between, you know, what's being said and what's being heard. All right. Well, I think that's a good, uh, good point to take our last break, and then we'll come back for the third segment and wrap this up. Do you like what you're hearing on the Archaeology Show? Want more archaeology podcasts? Check out the other shows on the network at www.archpodnet.com. From daily short shows to debunking pseudo-archaeology, the APN has it all. If you'd like to donate, tap on the bar at the top of the screen at www.archpodnet.com and help us out. We've got a lot of exciting things happening in the next few months, and we want you to be a part of it. All right, we're back. So we've We've talked about a lot of stuff here. Um, we've got a lot of a lot of good information, a lot of things to think about. But as far as scientific racism goes, where where do you think we where do you think we should go from here? Where do we you know where do we as scientists and then the general public where can we go from here to start you know fixing these problems? Well, I think what we need to do is to decide first of all whether we want to tolerate uh, racism in science. Mm -hmm. um, if you're willing to live with racism in science, then there's nothing further to talk about. Um, <laughs> If, if you're unhappy with the content of scientific racism, um, then we need to look at what's sustaining it and where it's coming from and, uh, you know, who's funding it. Um, and we need to look at where the scientists who are uh, doing this work um, are coming from and, and where they're getting their funding and what the ideological background is and what they think the implications of their work uh, actually are. Um, and, you know, a lot of this is coming from psychology. Um, a lot of it's coming from, uh, you know, the, the last remaining IQ testers. Um, some of it's coming from a, a field called human behavioral genetics, um, which is often less of a science and more of a credo. Because again, you know, why why call yourself a human behavioral geneticist when we know that very little of human behavior is actually genetic? Right. What are they basing that on? Well, what they're basing it on is we're really interested in the genetic basis <laughs> of human behavior, so it must be there. And again, it's not to say that there is no genetic basis of human behavior. I mean, I'm sure that um, you know some you know, personality traits or whatever um, have a genetic basis. But if you think about it, um, let's say on your best day as a human behavioral geneticist, you found an allele um, that um, made somebody really have a great sense of humor and laugh a lot, and somebody else with a different allele um, is always glum and doesn't have a sense of humor, okay? Mm -hmm. Well, if that gene is distributed like all the other genetic variation we know of, it's going to be found everywhere. It's going to be found more or less ubiquitously. Okay, but my question then would be, a, a Chinese person in China who has that laughing allele 
and a French person in Paris who has that laughing allele, how is that going to make their lives at all more similar? <laughs> right? right? I mean, one's going to be laughing in Chinese, one's going to be laughing in French. Their lives are still going to be completely different. So what is it that you think you're actually working on in the big scope of human behavior and human behavioral variation that is relevant to genetics? And, of course, the answer is, okay, we can look at slight differences. Perhaps we can look at slight differences in personality within a group. Okay, there might be alleles for schizophrenia, there might, which have been found and shot down with amazing uh, uh, speed. But um, we're not getting it yet. But these are, at best, the minor features of human behavioral variation. Mm -hmm. um, and... Usually what you discover is there is a political agenda behind it, which is we want to argue that a lot of human behavior and a lot of human intelligence is genetically constrained. Um, and then we're going to start finding it in rich people and poor people. And poor people, and, and again, this is coming out in the work of Charles Murray, going back to the bell curve, um, Poor people are poor because they have crappy genes. <laughs> and if poor people are poor because they have crappy genes, then there really is nothing you can do about it. There is no social program that will make their genes better, that will make them enter the middle class. And consequently, all the money that we're spending on social programs ought to be redirected. It's not doing any good. We need to spend it on more B-1 bombers or whatever. So that has a very important political message. And that was there in the bell curve. And every aspect of the science of the bell curve, again, has been shot down. Ch you know, Charles Murray is still a political commentator um, spouting bogus science in support of his political agenda. Now, the question is, okay, but what's that got to do? If, if we want to be scientists about this and we want the content of science to be real and to be rigorous, we shouldn't be talking about Charles Murray's crappy work. <laughs> And right. yet, you know, this is the issue that's still on the table. Should he be invited to college campuses? Well, who's inviting him and why? Yeah. And that, you know, then you realize, wait, this isn't about the science of human genetic variation. This is about political science. And again, science there in scare quotes. Mm -hmm. um, and it's about someone with a, a, a very um, uh, unfortunate political agenda, prostituting science for his uh, his own interests. That's not good for science. No, no, it isn't. And, you know, that, that made me think about um, some other things. Like, I'm sure there's behavioral geneticists that are looking for um, genetic a genetic basis for like sexual sexual diversity and sexual preference and things like that because that's all in the news all the time these days is you know anybody who doesn't identify as heterosexual says well I was born that way and this is who I am and if you're saying that you were born that way then 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 they're saying that there's some sort of probably genetic basis because if you were born that way you didn't have a chance to be culturally influenced yet and I mean what do, you, what do you say to people who are trying to look for that? Is it is it even something we should yeah. be doing, or is the word behavior the wrong word? No, no. Uh, when it comes to the, to the, the genetics of sexual preference, okay, um, the you have to look at it historically. All right, mm -hmm. the Nazis saw homosexuality as a problem. They saw it as a constitutional flaw, and when you see it that way, 
um, if you want to get rid of the problem, you get rid of the people with the problem, um, and that gets rid of the problem. Mm -hmm. Well, in the reaction against the Nazis, the next generation said, no, 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 it's not constitutional, it's not genetic, it's learned. Okay, so if you get rid of the, of the homosexuals, there will still be homosexuality because it's an acquired behavior. Right. Um, and then um, homophobes discovered that homosexuals were teaching in schools. Well, if they're teaching in schools and it's a learned behavior, they must be teaching homosexuality to our children. We can't have that. Mm -hmm. So we have to bar them from certain kinds of jobs that will be in education. Well, and then the pushback against that is, no, 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 it's not learned. It's genetic. So we're vacillating back and forth. You know, it's all about human rights. You know, which, you know, that's really what it's about. Um, different sides want it to be a simple answer. No one's interested in the complicated answer, which is we really don't know the basis of sexual identity. It's complicated. But nobody wants to hear that because that doesn't give you a simple political solution um, if you identify homosexuality as a problem in the first place. Right. Okay. Well, that's a lot to think about. I mean, my, let, let, let me just say also that in 98% in, um, chimpanzee, um, I made I thought what I thought was a very simple argument uh, based on human evolution, um, namely that if there's one thing we can say about human evolution, it's involved um, the separation of uh, reproduction from sexuality. And uh, certainly in, in the other primates, um, Reproduction and sexuality are, are are very tightly bound. If you want to go study sex in lemurs, you got to be there during two weeks at the end of January when they're getting it on, mm -hmm. um, or else you won't see any. Um, and so they have a breeding season. All right. Well, humans, obviously, sexuality, reproduction are separated. Um, and what that means is that um, we can look at homosexuality as simply just another way of being non-reproductively sexual, which is quintessentially human evolution. Right. There's no need to think about it as pathological, like sickle cell anemia, you know, or a problem. It's just another way of being human and expressing fundamentally human evolutionary capability. And that's something we see in the animal kingdom as well. You know, of course, um, it's easy to see. I think homosexual behavior in the animal kingdom is probably more difficult to see some of the other variations um, just because, you know, it, it's it's really difficult to see. <laughs> so, sure. but, but, well, I mean, yeah. there's homosexual interactions in the non-human primates, of course. But um, again, sexuality in humans is a lot more polysemic, multiple meanings right. um, than we find in non-human primates. Right. Okay. Well, um, do you have anything else to add on this? Um, where are you going from here? What uh, What do you got coming up next? <laughs> uh, well, uh, we're going to um, – actually, one of the things I'm interested in doing now is um, realigning the battle lines uh, against creationism mm -hmm. and recognizing that um, even though the people that speak the loudest within Christianity are often creationists um, – most uh, people teaching Bible studies uh, at the university level, teaching biblical studies and biblical history, are not in fact creationists. Um, a lot of most, you know, Catholic theologians and, and Lutheran theologians are not creationists. Um, and if biblical literalists are our enemies, then um, we have a, a mutual enemy. We have a common enemy if we ally ourselves with uh, mainstream Christian theologians. 
Mm -hmm. um, and uh, my friend Augustine Fuentes at the University of Notre Dame has been working with Catholic theologians. And I think that's a really productive way um, to turn uh, an ultimately losing war against biblical literalists and creationists um, into a possibly winning war, um, to recognize that, that Christian theologians are, in fact, evolutionists and on our side against the biblical literalists. Right. Well, that's, yeah, I agree. Um, and that's, uh, it's, I'm glad to hear you say you're, you're you know, kind of tackling that a little bit because we don't have enough. Uh, it seems to me like when you get those Christian literalists and the, and the quote Christian scientists and people that are, that do those sorts of things, their real only outlet is a public forum, right? Because they, they have a hard time getting published in mainstream journals, although it happens, but they have a hard time getting published in those. So they publish in fictitious, fictitious journals and journals they set up just for these things that they can get into any way, you know, any way they can. And now there's a lot of those journals out there. Right, right. Cause it's easy to do that. Well, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of weird, you know, uh, weird journals out there now yeah. that who knows what they publish and what criteria they use. Yeah, so they're they're out there, they're in the world, they're what they're what people are hearing, which is why we have some of the legislation we do and the people we have in office. And but then real real scientists doing the real work are just like, I don't have time for that. I'm just going to come over here and do my research and write my paper and write my book and not go out and speak to these diverse crowds. But, you know, they'll speak at conferences and things, but not diverse crowds. Like, like for example, someone like you, I, I mean, I think you would do great at, say, um, you know, the James Roundy Foundation's uh, amazing meeting in Las Vegas every year. <laughs> that would be, <laughs> be a good. Richard Dawkins has spoke there. Uh, yeah, you know, Michael Shermer, yeah. some other people. So uh, Bill Nye. Um, it would be, uh, you know, getting out and, and telling the world these these ideas from sure. from scientists doing the work. Man, that's what we need to do. So well, well, for the time being, I'm I'm uh, team teaching a class on creationism with the mm -hmm. chair of the religious studies department oh. uh, at my university. So um, we're we're working on this. Nice, nice. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Marks, uh, for doing this. And we have some links to some of your resources in the show notes, uh, including some of your books uh, and your blog and then your, you know, some other information if people want to check that out. So go check that out and uh, leave any comments you have in the show notes. And again, thank you, Dr. Marks. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for listening to the Archaeology Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. You can provide feedback using the contact button on the right side of the website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeology. Or you can email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Please like and share the show wherever you saw it so more people can have a chance to listen and learn. Send us show suggestions and follow ArcPodNet on Twitter and Instagram. This show was produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network. Opinions are solely those of the hosts and guests of the show. However, the APN stands by their hosts. Special thanks to the band Sea Hero for letting us use their song, I Wish You'd Look. Check out their albums on Bandcamp at seahero.bandcamp.com. Check out our next episode in two weeks. And in the meantime, keep learning, keep discovering new things, and keep listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Have an awesome day. This show was produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.
archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.